The Tempest. The customary scrape of the green 1960 Tempest station wagon pulling into the carport woke me up. Every weeknight at precisely 12.39 a.m., the sound of the scrape would politely announce the return of my mother. For a few minutes, I would lay in bed, listening to the muffled voices of my parents from the living room and waiting for the beam of light which would come through the bedroom with my mother. That was my signal to close my eyes and pretend to be asleep so mother could come in straighten the covers which I invariably pulled from where they'd been tucked in and kiss me goodnight. It was a wonderful, secure sort of feeling to be kissed goodnight by my mother when she got home. But somehow, I think it also embarrassed me. After all, I was all of seven years old now. It seemed to me that I was too old to be kissed by my mother. But of course, if I was asleep, I was in no way accountable for this affront to my dignity. She would then walk over to my older brother, John, who I believed really was asleep in his bed near the window. He usually slept with his pillow over his head. I was firmly persuaded he did this to avoid being kissed goodnight. Such sappy, sentimental drivel was utterly beneath John. This is not to imply that John did not have affection for our mother, he did. But to express it in a physical way fell into the category of what John and I called and this was not proper for him. His expressions of affection were limited to birthday and Mother's Day cards signed, Love John. Mom leaned over the bed and quietly began to slide the window shut. At its first scrape on the track it moved on, there was a muffled sound from beneath the pillow. I couldn't understand what it was, but it apparently meant something to my mother. She left the window open and pulled John's covers up around him. There was another grunt from under the pillow, and mother quietly said, You're welcome. She walked out the way she came in and closed the door behind her. Often, I would go back to sleep after Mother left, but some nights I would lay awake in bed and listen to the sounds around me. Tonight, I listened to my brother as he breathed deeply in and out. He swore the sound he made was not snoring, but as I'd never slept in a room with anyone else, save my parents, who also swore their breathing was not to be interpreted as snoring, I had nothing with which to compare it. Whatever it was to be called, it was not a pleasant sound. As I listened more carefully, I could hear the neighbor's dog, Crackers, quietly dragging his chain behind him as he paced dutifully up and down on his side of the two-car carport. We lived in a duplex, and in the house adjoining ours lived a woman and her three children. Her husband, Sergeant Cullough, had been assigned somewhere overseas, and he fully intended to see to it that his family would be safe in his absence. Crackers was a well-trained attack dog of whom I lived in mortal terror. They kept Crackers chained up on his side of the carport, which would have contained their car if they had owned one. 
Dividing the carport in halves were three white holes intended to hold the halves up. Their paint was peeling and the wood was rotting away from them, but they never fell. Crackers had a very definite and consistent set of rules for our family, which were enforced without either mercy or passion. We were more than welcome to drive into our half of the carport and get out of our car and walk into the house. So long as we did not move even an inch into his space. The penalty for this breach of contract was quick and absolutely dependable. With a throaty, somewhat spitty-sounding bark, Crackers would announce the offender's intrusion loudly to the entire block. Once he had fired his warning shot, we had five seconds to move back to our side of the world, and no delay would be tolerated. Anyone found on his side after the deadline would be instantly eaten. You probably believe this to be an exaggeration. I assure you it is not. I lost a teddy bear, a picture of a tornado which I had drawn. I was forever drawing tornadoes, which mother would praise highly. I scribbled randomly in circles, turned it in, and watched mother hang it with great pomp and circumstance on the refrigerator. And my favorite Hot Wheels car, the Mako Shark, all because they happened to fall from my hands getting into or out of our 1960 Tempest. It really was my own fault though, I suppose. Crackers would give me five seconds warning during which, had I been quick enough, I might have retrieved the lost items before he ate them. But the sound that Crackers made turned me cold with fear, and usually froze me in my tracks until he leapt across the entire length of his ten-foot half of the carport in a single graceful motion, straining his altogether too thin chain nearly to the breaking point, and utterly devoured whatever was unfortunate enough to be there. At Christmas time, Santa would replace whatever crackers ate. For my sixth Christmas, I had gotten a replacement teddy bear from Santa and a cute little clown with all sorts of clothes to wear from my grandma eater. The clown, which came with the name Patooties, had a string which, when pulled, activated some sort of tape mechanism inside the toy and allowed him to laugh in a cute but also somehow sort of evil way. It took me until the middle of January to break the tape. I had by then also managed to lose all of his clothes so that there was nothing left but a mute clown wearing red underwear and a painted smile. It was only then that I began truly to love the doll. I loved the teddy bear, which I, in my infinite creative capacity, named Teddy, almost immediately. He was cute, cuddly, and completely sincere. By last Christmas, I was already having suspicions about Santa's existence, but as the majority of my presents were marked to Freddy from Santa, I thought it might be unwise to voice my doubts. I was especially concerned last Christmas because I noticed for the first time ever that Santa brought presents for John, Shelley, and me 
but he never brought any for mother or father. In fact, last year, as I had sat surrounded by Batman toys, Mighty Mouse cards, a record player with a TV set that showed slides that went with the stories the records told, most of which were children's versions of Shakespeare, and a couple of new pair of pajamas with feet in them, I noticed neither my father nor my mother had a single present. When this fact came to my attention, I burst into tears of greedy guilt. The complete unfairness of the situation utterly consumed me, and I could not enjoy my toys for nearly ten minutes. Mother and father tried in vain to explain that they didn't need presents because they were all grown up now, but I would not be consoled. The following afternoon, mother took me out and helped me buy a corncob pipe for father, which she wrapped up as soon as we arrived home. No sooner had we hidden that present away when father came into my room and asked if I'd like to go downtown where he helped me buy a candle for mother. I cleverly had mother wrap this gift too, since I had no skill whatsoever in this line and told her not to look at what she was wrapping. My mother even had the class to pretend to be surprised that evening when she unwrapped it and she told me she had no idea that such a beautiful candle could ever be intended for her. Father smoked that stupid corncob pipe religiously every night after dinner and said it was his favorite of all his pipes. Across the long green yard, which began where the Cullis side of the carport ended, I could hear the Johnsons. I think they were yelling, but I could never be sure. Yelling implies anger, and whatever they were saying, they never said it quite loud enough for me to be sure if they were mad at each other or if they just naturally had loud enough voices to carry across the 50 feet or so of lawn and still make themselves vaguely heard in my bedroom over the sounds of the crickets and the frogs that lived next to the basement window. But whatever it was they were doing, they did it rather frequently. I remember having heard my mother say she wished they'd either stop it altogether or yell more loudly so she could at least follow the argument and perhaps have a bit of gossip to share. Mother used to joke about that, but I don't believe I've ever in my life actually heard her use a piece of gossip. She's interested in the goings-on of her neighbors, but she's never discussed them in any derogatory manner with anyone outside the family. Fred! I heard a fairly distinct voice coming from under John's pillow. What? Go to sleep. I never knew how John could tell when I was awake, nor why he had any interest in the subject. But he always knew, and he always cared. I had learned years earlier not to argue with my brother. I went to sleep. When I woke up in the morning, I found, as I normally did, my father sitting in the kitchen eating a bowl of Cheerios. We exchanged good mornings politely, and we set ourselves to our normal routine. I'd pour some Cheerios into the bowl, father would pour some milk 
and I'd eat breakfast. Father would usually finish his first bowl of cereal and start a second when I came out. He did so this morning. He read his newspaper, and I read my cereal box. A more content and serene breakfast have I rarely had. When I'd gotten the last couple of scrapes of sugar from the bottom of the bowl and drank the sweet milk, I would take my dish to the sink and Father would turn on the water to make sure it would be wet and, therefore, easier to wash later in the day. Then we would walk into the living room and I would pick up my plastic keys and begin to shake them as Captain Kangaroo appeared on the television set, doing the same. Our living room always seemed to me to be enormous. The floor was wooden and tended to be cold. Consequently, until I was 12 years old, I insisted upon wearing the sort of pajamas that had feet in them. The tops of most of my pajamas had either a picture of Batman or of Mighty Mouse on them. We had a black and white television set, which was connected to an antenna, which was in constant need of adjustment. I recall thinking of cable TV as a remarkable luxury for wealthy people who drove around in Rolls Royces and had little use for those of us in the middle class, which is where I believed I was. Halfway through Captain Kangaroo, usually just about the time Mr. Moose had dropped yet another load of ping pong balls on the captain, Mother would appear in the living room. We would also exchange good mornings and she would question me about the quality of last night's sleep. It had always been fine and I often wondered why she was so concerned about it. Our local doctor, Dr. Hebe, who had delivered me for the sum of $170 in the Henderson Hospital, would also frequently ask about my sleep and then have long conversations with my mother about my medication. Every month, I remember he would give me a blood test. He'd stick a sterile razor of some sort into my finger after delivering to me a short speech concerning the bravery of soldiers at war the intolerable pain they suffered tearlessly, and the true heroism of all American boys. Then he would stick me, and if I didn't cry, he'd reward me with a little plastic farmer wearing a removable yellow cap. When the cap came off, I would find some sort of delicious liquid inside, which I drank instantly. To this day, I don't know what was inside that farmer's head. Mother would dress me, medicate me, kiss me goodbye, I would always wipe it off to show my age and maturity, and send me off to school. School was up the street, Walker Drive, on which I lived in a couple of blocks over. I would walk to school in the morning with my girlfriend, Kelly Ashby. She was a terribly sweet little girl with blonde hair that hung in bangs on her forehead and straight at the back of her neck. She had a favorite blue dress with white spots on it that she used to wear. On Saturdays, we'd play Scooby-Doo, and I'd get to be the leading man, Freddie, since I had the same name that he did, and she'd play Daphne, who was the leading female role. Her best friend, Leanne, and mine, Danny, would join us as Shaggy and Velma, and together we would solve 
all varieties of bizarre mysteries. For a little while, we had a Scooby-Doo because Danny's family bought a dog. He got run over, though, after only a couple of weeks. And thus ended our Scooby-Doo. Our mysteries would usually take us all the way down the street and through the opening in the barbed wire fence that went all the way up and down Walker Drive and separated it from the field of trees and weeds on the other side. We'd search through the old piles of rotted wood, which were a treasure trove when it was time to build tree houses in the summer. We'd always be looking for clues. Anything that looked interesting would be a clue. Danny once found an old shoe which we decided must certainly have belonged to an escaped convict living somewhere in our field, and we immediately set out looking for him. Of course, we had no idea what we would do if we found him, but Danny and I thought we'd probably change into Batman and Robin and beat him up. For some reason, we thought if we were wearing capes, old towels we had stolen from our mothers and safety pinned around our necks and under our clothes, we would become infinitely stronger. I always got to be Batman because I was half a head taller than Danny and I had the blue towel. He could never find one. I told him he needed a yellow towel to be Robin, but the closest he could ever find was orange. When we failed to find the convict, we were tired and hungry and we would walk to Bud's Market, which was also on the field side of the fence. Bud had everything a child could ever want, and he would practically give the stuff away. He had half a wall full of cards. It included baseball cards, football cards, and Batman cards, with pieces of a picture puzzle on the back showing Batman and Robin doing something dazzling with a big pow, biff, or bam, next to whatever villain they were beating up. The other half of that same wall was the frozen food section wherein one might find bomb pops, sidewalk sundaes, Eskimo pies, or push-ups. There were also the traditional ice cream cups, but we never bought those because you didn't get enough ice cream for your dime. When Kelly and I walked to school together, we would rarely say much. If I asked about someone at home, She'd ask me if I had seen Johnny Quest last Saturday, and did I believe Haji could really do all those tricks, or was that just cartoon stuff? Mostly, we'd just listen to the robins singing in the trees, which could be heard nearly anywhere we walked. This morning, as we were walking to school, she set down her Scooby-Doo lunchbox and sat down. Right there in the middle of the sidewalk in her pretty blue dress, Kelly Ashby sat down. What are you sitting down for? Do you know what Jeff said to my mom last night? The breeze we'd been feeling as we walked to school began to pick up. Jeff was her older brother. He was 12 years old, as was mine. What? And he said it real loud, so I heard it, even though I was in bed. The St. Bernard inside of the Foster's house barked at us. He only barked once, as though to say, Hey, you're not supposed to be here. What did he say? Do you suppose it was nice? 
Kelly looked upset, and I was clueless as to what was bothering her. The light breeze became a full-fledged Nebraska wind. How come you're sitting down, Kelly? He said... Her voice became hushed. The D word. I looked properly shocked. Which one? The, the dog one or the other one? At the age of seven, I believed doggone it was a bad word. No, the other one. Oh, that one's real bad. And he even said the G word right in front of it and everything. The birds flew about in the trees and made an awful lot of noise now. Brutus, the St. Bernard, barked twice more at us and now captured the attention of the poodle across the street who went to the end of his leash and also began barking his commentary on Kelly's unprecedented behavior. Who'd he say it to? My mom. Did she wash his mouth out with soap? I don't think so, she said. She looked carefully at her Scooby-Doo lunchbox. What'd she do? I nearly had to yell to be heard over the wind, the birds, and the ceaseless barking of both dogs. I think she cried. I looked at Kelly, and she didn't look at me. There was nothing quite as horrifying to us as the thought of a mother crying. And then, with a suddenness that was chilling, came a sound even more terrifying than Cracker's bark. Silence. The wind stopped. The birds were soundless, and the dogs sat nervously down. The bright blue of the sky faded to gray, and Kelly and I looked at each other in horror. I grabbed her by the hand and pulled her up and we began to run home as though we were being chased by the escaped convict with the missing shoe. Neither of us made a sound save for our feet pounding the pavement as we hurried down Walker Drive. As the red bricks that were my house came into view, I saw the screen door slam open and my mother appeared there yelling after me. Frederick Franklin, get in this house this instant! I ran, pulling Kelly after me toward the door, and she stopped there and looked at her house, another 50 feet or so down the block. Bring her too, hurry! said my mother. Kelly looked at her own home, shook her head, and stood frozen. She said as politely as she could. Kelly Ashby never whined. I'm taking her. You'll do no such thing, my mother said, as I ran off, still pulling Kelly by the hand. Frederick Franklin, she yelled after me. We ran down the sidewalk, and Kelly's mother opened the door as we got to her porch. God damn it! I heard her father yell from inside. Get in here and close that door. It's coming. Bye, said Kelly, smiling weakly at me. Bye. I ran back up the street toward my driveway, where my mother stood in her brown apron with her hands on her hips. Hurry up. I got to the driveway, and she grabbed me by the hand now, and she pulled me into the house. Get your clothes off and get into the bathroom. Shelly's running the water. As I went into my bedroom, I saw my brother pulling his radio down from the bookshelf. 
Did you get your bath yet? I asked. No, I'm too old. I have to mind the radio downstairs. You better hurry. The weather bureau says it's just touched down on the highway. There's an overturned truck and everything. So what? I said, taking my shirt off. I just change into Batman and fight it. Don't be stupid, my brother said. He grabbed his baseball card blocker from underneath the bed and scrambled out of the room, saying, Hurry up and get in the tub so you can get downstairs. He shut the door behind him and was gone. I got the rest of my clothes off and ran down the hall to the bathroom, wearing nothing. My nine-year-old sister was kneeling by the tub, testing the water with her left hand. She wore my mother's old pink robe. Is it too hot? I asked. No, it's just right, so get in. Did you have yours yet? I got into the tub. Yes, she said, sounding slightly annoyed at the question. Oh, it's too hot. Oh, it isn't either. Don't be such a baby. She got her clothes together and picked up the towel with which she had recently dried herself. Hurry up and get done so you can come downstairs. She bustled out of the bathroom and closed the door behind her. I washed quickly using the washcloth puppet I had gotten for Christmas from Santa. When I finished my bath, I quickly toweled off and mother brought in fresh underwear and told me to put them on. But I, I only just put the other ones on an hour ago. You know what I wish? I wish just once I could tell one of my kids to do something and they'd just say, okay, mom, and not have to argue with me. I'd go to my grave a happy lady if just once that would happen. I sighed. Okay, Mom. She smiled at me. Thank you. She closed the door and I heard her footsteps down the hall. Then they stopped and returned to the door. It opened again. And hurry up! When I got to the basement, my brother was in the corner by the gray brick wall, putting the antenna of the radio up by the window, which was just below ground level in our front yard, inside a little ditch with a little cement wall around it. He was adjusting the tuning and moving the radio around in an attempt to get better reception. I heard the creak of the old wooden stairs and looked up to see Father coming down them, holding a flashlight and the candle I'd bought Mother last Christmas. Are we all here? he asked. All here, said Mom. And I take it we're all cleaned and bathed? He said it a bit sarcastically, very slightly making fun of my mother. We were allowed to tease father at will, but never mother. When father did it, even he had to be careful. If we're going to be in a tornado, they're going to find us clean. And wearing clean underwear, I said. Getting anything yet, John? Not right now. I heard before there's a tornado watching effect, but I lost that station. For the next several hours, we sat together in the basement. John played with the radio and organized his baseball cards. I drew tornadoes and offered on several occasions to go fight the one coming at us, but my mother finally told me that tornadoes had poison in them and not even Batman could defeat poison 
so I had better just stay put. When the lights went out in the basement, Dad made a point of saying how lucky it was I'd bought that candle for Mom last Christmas. Shelley said it was no big deal since we had a flashlight anyway, and everybody knew Dad had about a million of those little candles stashed down here just in case of something like this. I told her that she just wished she'd thought of buying Mother a useful candle. John told us both to shut up. He was getting something on the radio. He turned the volume all the way up, and through the static we could make out the word canceled, and something about severe damage to several homes. We returned to the world of light. Upstairs, everything was pretty much as we had left it. My towel was still on the floor in the bathroom, and my Cheerios dish was still soaking in the sink. Father suggested we take a ride and look at what had happened. Mother thought it might be educational. I thought it might be cool. We went. We stepped outside and looked at our own neighborhood first. The Johnson's house, directly up the street from us, was fine except for a big crack in the bedroom window where something must have hit it. I went to the end of the driveway and looked down the street at Kelly's house. Everything looked perfectly normal. Their porch swings moved quietly in the breeze. I listened for the birds and they were singing as happily as ever. Dad said for everyone to get into the car and we all piled in. I sat in the back of the station wagon and looked out the big window. I liked to pretend I was driving the car and we were going backward. As the car rolled out of the carport, the familiar scrape was followed by a metallic crash and Dad stopped the car. I'll get a hanger, said John. He got out of the car and returned, untwisting one of my mother's coat hangers. Father directed everyone to get out so the Tempest wouldn't be so low to the ground, and then he turned the motor off and set the emergency brake. John slid under the car and picked up the muffler which was sitting on the ground beneath it. He tied it back in place with the coat hanger, slid out, and we all got back in. We drove around the Lincoln, Nebraska countryside for a couple of hours. Our neighborhood was mostly untouched. Mrs. Foster's zinnias had been uprooted, and Mr. Black's new tree had fallen down. But the rest of it was fine. I made Dad drive by Bud's Market to make sure it was still there. Thankfully, it was. We saw a few places on the roads, though, in which one house had been totally destroyed, and the next was completely untouched. I used to think God must have been mad at one family, but not at the other. We got back around 6.30, and Father pulled leftovers out of the refrigerator. This was a nice night for Mom, as she only worked a half shift at the phone company. She left almost immediately after we got home. Usually, on her half shift, she'd make us a nice fresh dinner instead of having us eat leftovers which might be thrown together in any bizarre way my father had in mind in a single pot and cooked. But tonight, since we've been driving around so late, she didn't have time. I forced down the dinner my father made, 
only after he got out the timer. The timer was used to determine the length of time I had to eat my meal. If at the end of that time, usually most of an hour, I had not finished the meal, I would be taken into the bedroom and spanked, and the meal would be saved until morning when I would have it for breakfast. If you've never had cold Brussels sprouts for breakfast, let me advise against it. I went to bed at 8.30, right after Batman was over. I cuddled up with Teddy and Patooties and went to sleep and waited for the familiar scrape that would politely announce the return of my mother. <laughs>